Morning, Emmanuel. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, and we're going to be beginning, we're going to be beginning a 10-week series uh, looking at this very uh, practical book. Uh, whoever said that Christianity is so heavenly-minded that it's no earthly good never read Proverbs, not even once, because it is so eminently down-to-earth and practical uh, in its whole orientation towards uh, the Christian life and towards the life of believers. So I'm going to try to introduce you to this book. I love this book. And then over the coming um, 10 weeks, myself and seven other of our pastors are going to unpack various themes uh, from this very helpful book of Proverbs. Maybe it would be a good book for you to invite a friend to come and hear a sermon from as we just think about very practical matters, and those practical matters can often be turned to and will be over the course of this series connected to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as the source of all wisdom in every area of life. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read to verse 7, which gives us the purpose, the author, and the heart of the book. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let me just say to our young people this morning, here is a book of the Bible targeted up for you, to you. And let me say specifically to the young men, here is a book of the Bible that will just be knocking on your door all the time. If there's a refrain to the book of Proverbs, it's this two-word refrain, my son, my son. Proverbs is a big 31-chapter dad lecture where dad comes in and speaks to his children, to all of his children, but in a specific way to his boys about how they ought to grow up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And it teaches us not only how children to be spoken to, but also how we're to speak to them. One preacher pointed out that if you read all the my sons, my sons, my sons, my son, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, and you feel repetitive as a parent, there's some comfort there in how deeply biblical you are. Proverbs chapter 1 to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let's pray. 
Father, we come before You and we come as those who have seen that we are clearly fools. Lord, we have enough evidence in our lives to prove our innate folly over and over. And any bent towards wisdom we have is from You. Lord, we pray that You would inflame our hearts for wisdom and that You would destroy our desires for folly. We pray that You would do this, especially over these summer months, Lord God, that these would not be a time of spiritual coasting, but of surprising and startling growth. Lord, as the sun shines on the grass and the trees and the flowers and grows them up into full bloom, would You grow Emmanuel into great wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's, it's my delight to introduce you, if you haven't already been introduced, to the book of Proverbs because it's such an absolutely unique book in the Bible. The book of Proverbs is the kind of book that if it had been written today and not 3,000 years ago like it was, would tell you to mow your lawn and clean out your gutters and as one preacher pointed out, to change your oil regularly. It's that kind of a book. It deals right down to the very fingertips of godly religion. Uh, Proverbs chapter 24, verse 30 uh, gives us a kind of the feel that would tell you to mow your lawn and clean out your gutter. The, the writer writes, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was overgrown with thorns, the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw it and considered it. And probably a few guys who just got a nudge right now, and honey, this may be you. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And so the Proverbs is noticing these very, very ordinary kinds of things. That when you see everything overgrown in a home, it's an indication of how much sleep is happening inside of the home. Too much sleep inside results in everything being overgrown on the outside. Too much rest on the inside will eventually lead to poverty. So it just leads to this incredible, it, it points us towards this incredibly practical view of godliness. Let me give you another example of the way Proverbs gets into the details. If you read the Bible, you know that it's concerned with big truths. Often we'll read confessions of faith in our worship. I believe in God the Father Almighty who created the heavens and the earth. And of course, the Bible focuses us on these great, grand truths. God is a Creator. We have sinned against Him and we're cursed. Jesus Christ is a Savior and we should love His truth. That's good. You should focus on those great big truths. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10 implies we should love the truth. Ephesians 4.15 tells us to speak the truth in love. But that's not enough detail for Proverbs. Proverbs wants to get more particular. A soft answer turns away wrath. Or one of my favorite Proverbs, a soft tongue can break a bone. i got to take this guy down a notch or two. Speak softly. 
My wife just gave me a look. So we all got some applying to do over the course of the summer. The book of Proverbs, again, gets us into this, what one person has called earthy spirituality, down-to-earth religion, piety in the everyday. Now, I, I came across a quote this week that I just loved. It really reignited my love for Proverbs. I've been reading a systematic theology, not a place I thought I would find anything juicy on the Proverbs, but I'm reading a systematic theology by a Dutch theologian by the name of Hervin Bavink. I know that's engaging for you to know. And uh, Bavink lived like Downton Abbey time periods, if you want to kind of situate him. That's when he lived, late 1800s, early 1900s, but not in England, in Holland. And uh, Bavink was, was writing about the unique place of the Proverbs in the Bible. And he said something that just gripped me. He said the Proverbs is not like the historical books that give revelation. So Genesis, God created the world. Exodus, God redeems His people. Proverbs doesn't primarily function by giving us those big strokes of who God is and what He's done in the world. And then he goes on, Bavink goes on, he says, and it's not like the Psalms. The Psalms are this musical, heartfelt response to what God has revealed. So the Psalms take Genesis and write poetry. The Psalms take Exodus and write poetry and sing about it. And Bavink says, but the Proverbs aren't like these historical books full of new revelation." The Proverbs aren't like the Psalms where our hearts are encouraged to respond to God's revelation. He says the Proverbs are different. And he writes this, they are applicable to ordinary daily life. The life of man and woman, parents and children, friendship and society, business and profession, it does not operate, listen, on the high plane of prophecy, nor does it see so far. It does not explore so profoundly as the Psalms or a psalmody, but it pays attention to the vicissitudes. There's a $10 word for ups and downs. It pays attention to the vicissitudes, the ups and downs of life. Experience, now this is what got me. This is what I just, I just like, oh, I can't wait to preach the Proverbs experiences under which people tend despairingly to succumb and raises people up again above the level of those experiences. Now that's interesting. What's he saying? He's saying the things that bring us down in our Christian lives often turn out to be the most mundane, the most daily. Believe it or not, and I know this might be hard for some of you who may be studying theology, believe it or not, when people come into a pastor's office, they rarely say, oh, my wife and I have been fighting and fighting and fighting about the nature of the Trinity. I believe the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And she thinks the Holy Spirit just proceeds from the Father. I've never had that happen. Never, not once. Let 
but debt, lack of friendship, sex, nagging, get-rich-quick schemes, children being derailed and sucked into bad company. That's the stuff that brings people down. And that's the thing. Even though we have this glorious salvation, you will be redeemed from all of this. The Proverbs comes and addresses the daily, the mundane, the stuff that actually tends to, as Bavink puts it, cause us despairingly to succumb. What a line. But then it says this, and raises people up above the level of those experiences. So it talks about not just like, oh man, it sucks to be in debt. No, here's how you avoid debt. Oh, it's terrible to be hungover. Oh, here's how you ought to think about alcohol. None of my friends... You fill in the blank. Here's how you should think about friendship. My kids are going off the rails. Here is how you do the best to set them on the right track. Now, having said that, it's important that we talk about the nature of Proverbs for a second. The Proverbs does tend to give us the normal rails of life. It tends to give us the normal way life works. Work hard for a long time. Live frugally. You'll gain wealth. Don't flirt with the flirty girl in the office and you won't have an adulterous affair. It tends, to, it tends to gear us towards the normal path of life. But the Proverbs are not to be taken as ironclad promises the same way we take he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of Christ Jesus. Or I am the way and the truth and life. No man comes to the Father except by me you train up your child in the way they should go and yours is one of the children who doesn't go that way, it's not a disproof of the reality of the Proverbs. That happens because of the nature of proverbial wisdom. These, this wisdom is proverbial. It's, it's the way things generally tend to go. Generally, hard work over a long time plus frugality equals great wealth. Except when you're Job. And God takes it all away. And so we have to recognize what kind of, what kind of things we're getting because we don't want to take these kind of promises and say, I did the Proverbs and now God owes me and it didn't happen exactly the way I expected and so I'm bitter with God. That's one negative reaction to the Proverbs. But it, the other negative reaction would be say, well, that stuff's not promises. What does it matter? It matters because this is the way life actually works. Hard work gets wealth. Lazy people get fired. This is how this works. This is how this happens. If you amass huge amounts of debt, you will be the slave of the one you are indebted to. These are all proverbs. If you sleep in every Saturday night, then eventually your lawn will overtake your house. And it will take, and then it gets worse. Cutting a long lawn makes life harder. I've heard. 
So here's the nature of the book we're talking about. A book with about nine chapters of sermons, Proverbs 1 through 9, and then, although there's a few more sermons later on, generally short, pithy, pregnant statements that give insight and wisdom into life. Well, I want to begin by introducing you to the author of this wisdom. Notice the first verse we read tells us who wrote this book. These are the Proverbs of Solomon. These are the Proverbs of Solomon. And we're told that he is the son of David. And of course, we've been in Matthew, and we've been pointing out how Jesus is the son of David, this, this royal line, this line where God rules over his people. He rules over his people through David. Well, Jesus is the ultimate son of David. Solomon is the first royal son of David. And that actually helps us understand a little bit of the book. The book is coming to God's people from their king. And the king speaks to his people like a father. And I'm just going to say this to you right now. Uh, men, anywhere you've been given leadership, you should think in fatherly categories. You should think about the shepherding and the cultivation and the ennobling and the equipping of the areas you've been given. Here's Solomon setting the tone for a whole nation. Solomon the king says to Israel, my son, my son, my son. And he begins to equip them. Now, uh, the, bio, the book tells us that it's the Proverbs of Solomon, but as you read it carefully over the next coming weeks, you're going to notice a few things. You're going to get to Proverbs chapter, I think it's 30, and it's going to say these are the Proverbs of Agur. You're going to get to Proverbs uh, 31, and it's going to say here are some Proverbs from Lemuel. So it's not like every single verse is written by Solomon. Actually, scholars have noticed that it seems like we've got evidence of Egyptian wisdom literature in the Proverbs. That is, wisdom Proverbs the Egyptians wrote find their way into the Proverbs. That's interesting. What does it mean? It means that Solomon, full of the Holy Spirit, could notice common grace in other cultures and make sure it got into God's book for the help of God's people? But is the Bible's normal pattern to name a book by its majority author? Let me give you an example of that. Deuteronomy, the last chapter, is about what happened after Moses' death. So there's one person we know didn't write that chapter. Moses. And yet we're told the book is the book of Moses. And so it's, it's the general, this book is from Moses. It's origin, it's, it's matter, it's, it's author is Moses. But the Bible's not making a claim that every verse in that book is specifically authored by Moses. And here in Proverbs, we shouldn't be troubled or surprised when we find sections that are attributed to other authors. It is Solomon who wrote the majority of the book. It's Solomon who probably compiled the book and brought it together for God's people. Now, I don't know if you know how wise Solomon was. Solomon was extraordinarily wise, and the best way to illustrate that in my mind is through a prayer and a story. A prayer and a story. 
And they come to us in 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. So if you turn back to 1 Kings, uh, you're dealing with the tail end of David's reign, the first king, sorry, the second king of Israel, first king in the Davidic line. And then you're dealing with his son's reign, Solomon. And what we're given, very fascinatingly, at the start of Solomon's reign, at his coronation, if you will, is we're given Solomon's prayer. We're told what Solomon prayed when he became king. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7, we read these words that we're jumping right into Solomon's prayer. And now, O Lord my God, You have made Your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child, just a baby. I do not know how to go out or come in. When's the last time you prayed like that? We're usually actually dictating to the Almighty exactly what should happen tomorrow, and we, then we, we bless Him by asking for the strength to do it. Solomon's like, I'm a kid in all this. I'm a child. I don't know how to go in. I don't know how to go out. I don't know anything. He says, And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. I'm a baby in charge of a nation. So many people I can't even count. And I'm responsible for all of them. I'm to be like a national father to all these people, and I can't even count them, and I'm a baby. Now listen to this. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? What did he ask for? An understanding mind. You realize that just because you're inundated with facts about what's going on in the world doesn't mean you know anything, right? Just because there's a 24 news cycle doesn't mean you understand anything of what's going on. In order to process any of it in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, you need an understanding mind. And an understanding mind is not just a mind that says, oh, I get it. I'm on top of it. An understanding mind is one that knows how to discern between good and evil. Ever felt in this current cultural climate like you can't figure out who ought to be wearing the black hats and who ought to be wearing the white hats? Like you can't figure out who's right and who's wrong? Why? Because it takes wisdom. It takes God-given understanding and wisdom to even know what's right and wrong. It's amazing. Many of you children have lectured your parents this week about what's right and wrong. And I want to ask you this. Did you ever pray like this before you did? And if you didn't, I can basically guarantee you you were wrong. Because none of us come out of the womb with just wisdom. And I'll tell you, parents, some of your parents, you lectured your kids about what is right and wrong, but there's no prayer like this in your life. You were wrong. There's no 
I got it right by nature in us. All our wisdom is God-given. It's God-given wisdom. Now here's God's response to Solomon's prayer. Listen to this. It's amazing. Here's what God says to uh, Solomon's prayer. And basically, it's, it's the Lord saying, now that was a breath of fresh air. Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, now I do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. This is the wise man of the ages untouched until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in wisdom. He is given the spirit of wisdom. Now that's amazing. Now, that's the prayer that shows us how wise the author of this book is, which is why you should listen to him. The story is this. This guy's so wise he could solve a murder mystery in a whorehouse. That's how wise Solomon is. So wise he could solve a murder mystery at a brothel. And that's the very next story the author tells us. Jumps to that. Now let me illustrate my point, says the author of 1 Kings. There were two prostitutes. Let me read you this story. Verse 16. 1 Kings chapter 3. And I'm going to tell you my application before I get there. If you're thinking that the modern world is nuts and it's impossible to navigate the modern world, let me just tell you, the first chapter of Proverbs is how to keep your kid out of a gang. And the first thing Solomon deals with after he's prayed for wisdom is how to solve a murder mystery in a brothel. That's pretty out there. Okay? Right? Okay, so you might be struggling with, oh man, I mean with TikTok and gender confusion and wars everywhere and economic craziness. How could anyone ever figure out their way to walk through this world? This guy. This guy. This book. We are not in over our heads with this book. We do not lack the insight we need for no matter how crazy the world gets. The world can not know its right hand from its left. If you'll remember the book of Jonah. They can live like there's no king and everyone does what is right in their own eyes and there's six billion visions of reality. And this book can provide the wisdom you need to walk through the craziness. Then two prostitutes came to the king, this is verse 16, and stood before him. The one woman said, oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. Now when two prostitutes live in the same house, what do you call that? That's why I'm talking about a brothel or a whorehouse. Oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house and I gave birth to a child. And when she was in the house, then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth and we were alone. There's no witnesses. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night. 
because she lay on him. She arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. And I looked at him closely in the morning. Behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman, no, the living, the other woman said, No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. A couple things here before we go on. One, there's no witnesses. That keeps getting emphasized. Nobody saw this. No one was around. No way to prove it. No corroborating evidence. Nothing. Second thing, how on earth did two prostitutes get a hearing in front of the king? Must have been the king of Israel. Must have been the one who was taught to care for the oppressed, to care for the downtrodden. I don't know about you, but I don't know of President Biden having seen, or any president for that matter, in living memory having seen those considered on the lowest rung of society and giving them his direct ear to grant justice. That's stunning. So here's Solomon listening to two prostitutes about whose baby's dead and who killed who and who swapped out the baby. The king says, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. The other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Now here is what makes Solomon so brilliant. Okay. Was there a witness? No. Any identifying marks on the child that would identify the child as one woman's or the other? No. When babies are a couple days old, I mean, I know yours is the cutest ever, but they pretty much all look the same. There's no final distinguishing mark that's going to let the baby decide the matter. So Solomon is looking through the world, but he's, he's got the multiverse in his brain. He's seeing more than most people see. Maternal instinct. As I know about maternal instinct. No true mother wants their kid cut in half. And so he says, bring me a sword, cut the kid in half, and the one woman says, no way! And the other one says, do it. And Solomon knows exactly who the mother is without a birthmark, without a witness, without any positive identification, but because he knows how the world works. And in this case, specifically, he knows how maternal instinct works. This is the one who compiled this book. This is who put this together. The one who'd been granted by God more wisdom than anyone else. The one who could solve a murder mystery in a brothel. This is the one who has wisdom for the modern age in which you live in, and we are fools not to plunder this book, not to carefully digest the wisdom of this book. Now, someone might say, I'll just deal with this briefly. Someone might say, wait a second, but I know later on in his life, uh, Solomon amassed a boatload of wives, 
and wound up being totally unfaithful to the Lord. Absolutely true. But Solomon's sins do not destroy Solomon's graces. Just because Solomon had areas where he betrayed the Lord does not mean there were not areas where God was faithful to Solomon. And we need to remember two things. All of those Old Testament saints with their massive blemishes were told in Romans chapter 3 that God set forth His Son as a propitiation because He had passed over the sins in the past. He had overlooked the cowardice of Abraham. He had overlooked the, the murder of Moses. Why? Because He knew He was going to send forth His Son to pay for their sins. So that Romans chapter 3.23 and following, Jesus, God the Father could be just and the justifier of the one who had faith in Jesus. And then the second thing is, any wisdom Solomon's got comes from the same Spirit that was poured out on Jesus at His baptism in Matthew chapter 3. Right? We're told in Isaiah 11 that the Spirit that rested on Jesus was the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might. So anything we can get from Solomon through his imperfections is brought to full bloom in Jesus without any imperfections. And so we should listen to the wisdom of Solomon. Now, I only got through my first point. Uh-oh. First thing, kind of book it is. Kind of book that would tell you to change your oil. Two, who wrote it? Solomon. Three, what's the purpose of all this wisdom? What does this wisdom do? What, what specifically does Proverbs bring to us that other books don't? And I want you to notice the purpose statement of the book. I read it already, but I want you to just notice verse 3 especially. Sorry, yes, verse 3. Verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing. This is verse 3. In righteousness, justice, and equity. Okay, think about this with me. Proverbs is going to help you live a righteous life. Proverbs is going to help you live a life of justice. Remember, God was pleased with Solomon because he asked not for wisdom to get rich or wisdom to be successful, but wisdom to know to do what is right. Right? But why do we need the Proverbs for that? you got a conscience. Conscience, Romans 2 tells us we know what is right. We got the Ten Commandments published in two different parts of the Bible. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not covet. Why do we need the Proverbs? What do they do that's unique? We have the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes, He will convict the world of righteousness. Here's what the Proverbs do. They function very differently than many other parts of the Bible. The law of God with the righteous standards. Thou shalt not murder. Honor your parents. Don't put any gods before me. The law of God says that was wrong. That was unrighteous. The Gospel says you can be forgiven by Christ's righteousness. 
The proverb says, here's how you could have avoided getting into that mess entirely. The Proverbs gives you wisdom not to wind up in the bad place. The Proverbs gives you the wisdom you need so you don't... Who here has woken up one morning thinking, I cannot believe where I'm at in life? You woke up hungover and having done something foolish. You woke up having looked at the credit card bill and realized you've been living on money you don't make so long that it's going to take longer than you seem to have left in life to get rid of this. You got so angry. You got so aroused. You got so foolish that you got yourself in a mess you cannot seem to climb out of. Proverbs reverses the script. It rewinds things and says, Here's how that could be avoided. Here's how you could avoid getting into that mess in the first place. Because a lot of life, a lot of life, and I'm not saying you, you can always avoid sin, but I'm just going to tell you, you can get yourself into some predicaments where it's really hard to avoid sin. And Proverbs will pull you back and teach you to walk in wisdom so that by God's grace, you're not even getting close to the sin. Let me give you some examples of this. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Listen to me. Listen to me, kid. Listen to me, son. Forsake not your mother's teaching. They are a graceful garland for your head, pendants for your neck. You see more and more people wearing diamond earrings, wearing gold chains. The Proverbs author is saying, I'm your bling. I am. I, you want to look hot? You, you want to look fancy? Put on my wisdom. Wear me. I mean, and don't, don't, that is what's being said. The, the, the Proverbs author is going for the jugular of what children are after. Look, I put a sparkle band on my neck. Check me out. Very impressive. You have no ability to do what is right. You're a fool. A shiny fool, but a fool. For they are a graceful garland for your head, pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them up. And whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will have one purse. What's, what's this dad doing? This dad is talking gang talk to his boy before the gang gets there. He's like, they're going to come along and they're going to say, let's roll this guy for money. And once we roll this guy for money, we'll all have all the money together. He's basically writing the gangster rap hip-hop song early for his kid, reciting it to it. This dad is not like, I don't, I don't listen to that. I don't listen to that. If you don't listen to the lies of this world... Your kids will not wind up holy. They'll wind up fools. The need in biblical fatherhood is not to keep your kids from ever hearing the lies of the world. 
The aim of biblical fatherhood is to make sure you're the one who told them the lies of the world. Because the world never comes along and says, you know what? All that glitters with me really is gold. And the world, or sorry, the world does talk like that. They never say all that glitters isn't gold. That's dad's job. Dad's job. And mom's, what, what, verse one, joining right there with dad, For, forsake not your mother's teaching. Parents, Christians to one another, what are we doing? We're saying, hey, this is the world works. If somebody comes along and says to you, there's easy money available, all it takes is a little violence, the Proverbs instructed kid goes, that's a lie. How do you know it's like? Dad told me. Where does it go? Where does, all, where does all this easy money go? Look at it. Verse 15. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to do evil. They make haste to shed blood. Now listen to this image. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. Okay, and most of us are not bird net catchers, but let's try this one on for size. If you were trying to catch a bird... Would you stand in front of the bird and lay out the net? No. Like, trapping 101 is you hide. You don't want the thing you are trying to catch to see you set the trap because most animals have enough brain power, even if it's the size of a pea, to go, that's bad. I'm not going over there. Yeah, that guy just laid bird seed in a net. That is not where to get the bird seed. And the dad's playing on this. For a vein is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men, these men who tell you they can make you rich quick, these men wait for their own blood. They lay out the net that's going to catch them. They are actually laying out the murderous ways that will wind up killing them. They set an ambush for their own lives. And amazingly, it's those who get involved in get-rich violence who often get killed by get-rich-quick violence. And Solomon didn't need the war on drugs in the 80s to teach him that. Solomon knew that 3,000 years ago. And you can know it today if you'll pour over these words. This same logic is all throughout the book. I, I wish I could spend a bunch of time explaining it to you, but I guess others will have to do that. Proverbs chapter 5 describes, it's a dad describing an immoral woman to his son. Right? She's going to have lips like honey. She's going to have smooth words. Proverbs chapter 5. Now the problem is, if a kid never hears about that, and all he ever meets is his first woman with honeyed lips, he's like a deer led to the slaughter. But if his dad's been teaching him Proverbs, he goes, oh, that does look sweet, but dad told me it'll kill me. So the Proverbs, what it does is it gives us glimpses into the future by telling us the way life works. And it helps us avoid the whole scenario. The other way of avoiding the whole scenario of sin is Phariseeism. Just draw rigid, strict lines around everything in your life so that no bad can ever get in. And that's highly effective, right? No kid ever wanted to bust out of those lines. The other path is parents that instill insight 
wisdom. And when I say parents, I, I, I want to speak to you today as a father. I'm speaking to you as a father would speak to their children. Here's how you gain wisdom. Here's how you gain insight. You, you begin to see where a thing will go. You begin to see where that road leads by reading the Word of God and understanding the Proverbs. Laziness will get you poverty. Not, I'm going to come back to this in 10 weeks. Proverbs 31 was written for men. We should have men's ministries devoted. We should have Proverbs 31 T for the guys. Because it's teaching you what to be attracted to. And it's amazing because in one verse, it says this. Beauty is fleeting and charm is deceitful. And every guy I ever met, she's so pretty and we have a lot of chemistry. Uh, I think we need to do a Bible study. Because <laughs> that's not going to get you where you want to go. And Proverbs 31 is orienting us to that. Okay, i got to end with this. We talked about the author of the book, a man given wisdom by God. We talked about the purpose of the book. It's, it's to help you walk in righteousness, but not just like commands. Those are good. Don't, don't, don't hear me saying a bad word about commands. But it gives you the wisdom to avoid getting into the predicament in the first place. To avoid the whole scenario. To walk as far away from the edge of the cliff as you can. And then, lastly, verse 7, and this could be called the, the purpose statement of the book, maybe the thesis of the book. It gives us the heart of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. This is verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the, the starting point with wisdom is not short, pithy Proverbs. You can get all the short, pithy Proverbs you can imagine, but if you don't have the fear of the Lord as the abiding attitude of your heart, all of those wise sayings will do you no good. The fear of the Lord is the magnet of the soul that those wise sayings stick to. But without the fear of the Lord, those wise sayings just slide off you like water off a duck's back. Like an egg off a Teflon pan. Think about it. Proverbs says, the start of a quarrel is like a leak in a dam. So stop it before it bursts. And you've, 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 we've all been there in that conversation. You go, if I push this harder, it's all going to burst. And then what do we do? Push it a little harder because we're fools. And because we're not governed adequately by the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is marked by three words. And I'll close with this. But when you say I'll close with three words, who knows how long that could go. But anyway, here it goes. 
fear of the Lord is marked by three words. Terror, relief, and reverence. Now, one of the weird things theologians do is they'll say, the fear of the Lord here doesn't mean fear. What an awfully strange way to put that. If the author was trying to communicate no fear, they have done a decidedly poor job. Add to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ commands people to be afraid of God. And do not fear those who kill the body, said Jesus, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Our God can, and wherever there is unrepentant rebellion, will destroy those who rebel against Him. And it's folly not to be afraid. It's folly. It's folly to know there is a judge of all the universe who will make a final end-time decision where there will be no court of appeals and only one sentence. Eternal death and condemnation. And do not think the terror and dread and fear is not an appropriate response to this God. The old hymn writer, Americans love to sing Amazing Grace. What does it say in Amazing Grace? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." If you have ever come to a place where you are afraid of the judgment of God, that is a mercy from God in your life. Now, some of you are saying, Ryan, the next verse though in that hymn, Amazing Grace, says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved." Here's the thing. The fear of God is not just abject terror. It's not less than terror. But it's not just terror. If all we ever got from God was terror, we would just give up. But the whole grace of God comes in to remove that terror in Christ. I love Psalm 130, I believe it is, where it says, but there is forgiveness with you that you might be feared. The source now of fear is forgiveness. I was terrified by the wrath of God. Christ steps in and dies in my place and forgives me. And all the terror is removed. But what's left is the sweetest kind of reverence. The one who could kill me has saved me. John Piper illustrates this so well. I'll tell you the story and then I'll be done. He says, imagine you're in a blizzard. And it's been years since I've read this illustration, so if I add a few details, that's on me. But imagine you're in a terrible blizzard and you're out in the cold, or if you're not from up north and you can't imagine how bad a blizzard is, well, just imagine a hurricane, but frozen. And, and you're out, and the snow is coming down. You can't see in a blizzard. You often get snow blinded because the, the, the visibility becomes next to nil. 
the white snow above, the white sky above, white snow beneath, white sky above, white everywhere. And you know if you stay out in this, you're dead. You're going to freeze to death. And you are rightly terrified. There's a right kind of fear. And then all of a sudden, a voice comes. Hey, look over here. And there's a little secluded cave with a fire in it. And you tuck yourself into that fire, that cave by the fire, and the storm is just as powerful outside, just as terrifying. If you step out into it, it will kill you just as quick, but you are totally shielded in this cave. And what happens? There is a proper terror from the threat, but it is totally relieved in the cave, and there is a reverence for the one who called you in to that safety. That's the Christian's fear of the Lord. And when you have that kind of fear of the Lord, this is, I was under the wrath of God. God would destroy me not by water or by snow, but by fire. And not for a minute, but for eternity. But He has called me into something better than a cave. He's called me into the the wounds of Christ, the cross of Christ, the salvation of Christ. And now there is no fear of judgment. But it doesn't make me diminish the terror of God or make light of the terror of God, but to have a reverence that the One who can destroy me has saved me. And now He wants to tell me how to live blessedly. Now He wants to guide me through this crazy world with wisdom. When you have that kind of fear of the Lord, then the Proverbs is like, yes, please, teach me. Because I don't know how to go. I'm a little baby. I'm a child. I don't even know how to go in or out. But if you'll give me Proverbs wisdom, I'll be able to navigate friendship, alcohol, money, sex, you name it. The details can be navigated by the wisdom of God. Father, thank You for Your wisdom. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your help. Teach us, Lord. Make us hungry. Make us a people praying over the Proverbs to receive wisdom and to grow in the fear and the knowledge of God and in wise living and in righteousness. Amen.